Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 1, and it's verses 1 and 9 through 11, and then 21 through 28. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because they, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And this is God's word for us today. So, can you keep a secret? I mean, really, can you keep a secret? No, just be honest, you can't keep a secret. I can't keep it. We can't keep secrets. You know how it goes, right? Someone tells you, hey, um, I've got this thing, but I, I really don't want you to tell anybody. You need to keep this secret. So we listen to it. And then the next person we run into, you know, I, I'm really not supposed to tell you this. But I, you go ahead and tell them and at the end, but don't tell anybody else, okay? Yeah, and I don't, I'm not going to have you raise your hand and implicate yourself, but I bet every hand would go up because we just aren't really good at keeping secrets. Today we're beginning a series on the Gospel of Mark. And um, in one sense, gospel, the, Mark is this um, mystery. It's an identity mystery. Who is this man? And for the crowds, it's kind of a secret. Now, Mark um, has such personality uh, just kind of on every page. And you would expect that because John Mark, who writes this, gets his information from Simon Peter, the, uh, the closest of the disciples with Jesus. You could say of the inner circle, G Peter was his best friend. And Peter has this big, bold personality, and he can't keep his mouth shut when he should be quiet. And, and, and he's impetuous and uh, kind of um, can be sometimes arrogant. But he's got a deep devotion, and he loves Jesus. And he gives Mark this eyewitness count. It's the first of the Gospels. Now, you say, wait a minute, Ron. Isn't it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yes, it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Mark was actually chronologically written first. And it's the briefest of the Gospels. In fact, he tells the story very rapidly, which is kind of what you would expect from Peter. Very fast talking, very go, uh, going fast forward through the whole thing. Uh, two of the favorite words of uh, Gospel of Mark are immediately and suddenly. And suddenly, Jesus appears on the scene. Verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, 
the Son of God. Jesus appears on the scene. There's no birth stories. There's no Mary and Joseph on the donkey riding to Bethlehem. There's no uh, angels singing in the heavens. There's no genealogy like Matthew and Luke have. There's no grand prologue like John. He just gets right into the story, tells us immediately who Jesus is, and it will take the rest of the story to unpack what those titles, Messiah and Son of God, really mean. But he lets us readers in on the secret. In chapter 1, we see the demons know who he is. The readers, we know who he is. But guess what? The crowds don't. So they're constantly asking, who is this? The disciples, they don't. One of the stories we'll see is when there's a storm on the sea and Jesus speaks and the, the storm is quieted. They, in fear, say, who is this that speaks to the wind and the waves? And there's this, who is this guy? Who, what is this all about? Until you get to the very end of the gospel. And on the day that Jesus dies, as he takes his last breath, we're told this. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, chapter 1 packs a lot of information into it. Mark, in telling the story, doesn't uh, waste much time. He jumps into the story with both feet and begins very quickly telling us some um, important things. And uh, what today's message is sort of an introduction to the series, but also in looking at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we're going to see several things that are revealed about Jesus, this one that Mark is endeavoring to tell the story of, which is the, the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to tell the good news, the, what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, so what's revealed about Jesus in Mark chapter 1? Well, first of all, that he's the Messiah. Uh, he is the anointed one. Messiah literally means the anointed royalty, the anointed one. When kings in Israel were made kings, the oil would be poured on their heads, symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit, saying that these, this person is now being set apart for a kingly role, for an important role. But the Messiah was the ultimate of the anointed, the one who would reign on David's throne forever. Now, Messiah was someone that the people of Israel were looking for for a long time. It really means the, the anointed one, the deliverer, the redeemer. Uh, and by the way, it's also the same word as Christ. When you take the word, the Hebrew word Messiah, you bring it into Greek, and then into English, it comes over as Christ. So Christ and Messiah are the very same words. And um, here he's telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets have been saying for centuries. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. This is where it begins. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And in the next verse, he tells us about John the Baptist. He just gets right into the story. And um, John later says, a few verses down, and this was his message, John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, 
the, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so the Old Testament passages, the prophets, the prophecies, hundreds of them pointed to this one who was the Messiah. And now John is saying, this is the one. He's the Messiah. Now, the people of Israel had been looking for the Messiah for a long time, especially struggling under Rome. They were hoping for someone in their mindset. The Messiah was a political figure, a military figure who was going to redeem them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. So they were all looking for the Messiah. But the next thing that, John, that Mark says about Jesus is something nobody saw coming. When he says, this is the good news, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Son of God. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean here? To say that he's the Son of God is to put him on the same level of God, is to say that, that this Messiah is divine. Nobody expected that. Nobody was looking for a divine Messiah and yet, he shocks us. Any Jewish first century reader of Mark would immediately have been taken back. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, Messiah, get that. Okay, you're going to tell me he's that, but he's also the son of God? In fact, this is the first of a whole lot of shockers that take place in chapter 1 and actually throughout the whole gospel of Mark. Uh, when you go down to, to verse 9, you see a couple of them uh, in one sentence. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So, a couple things here. So, after Mark tells us this is the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God quotes from Isaiah, tells us about John the Baptist, jumps in and here, Jesus suddenly appears and says he's from Nazareth. This would have shocked everybody because Nazareth, a town in Galilee, was never mentioned in the Old Testament. Not even once, never even comes up. I mean, Bethlehem, yes, Jerusalem, many times. You could go through a whole lot of cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament, but Nazareth? Are you kidding me? They would have said, in fact, Nathaniel later, when he heard, hears that Jesus comes from Messiah, can anything, good come from, from, can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Nazareth was just kind of a backwater town, simple folk. Nobody would have seen the Messiah coming from there. It's like if, you know, if it was prophesied that Jesus was going to be born in Missouri. Where would you expect I mean, St. Louis, probably by Bush Stadium, right? <laughs> Maybe Kansas City, Jefferson City, the capital, right? Let's say he's born in Puxico. <laughs> Nobody would have seen that coming. Jesus, the Puxican. Isn't that how you say if you're from Puxico, is it you're Puxican? I don't know, you're Mexico, Mexican, I don't know, Puxican. No, people would have said, Puxico? Jordan and a bunch of folks in our church are from Puxico, so I have a little fun with them, okay? But they would have said, can anything good come from Puxico? No one saw that coming. That was a head scratcher. And then, that he was baptized. Oh, time out here. Wait a minute. Isn't he coming to baptize us? Didn't John just say, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? And here's Jesus in line with a bunch of every ordinary, ordinary everyday sinners, and he's going to get baptized? What? Now, later we learn Jesus was sinless. But he stands in line with the sinners, almost as if he's identifying with them that he's going to share their circumstances. That Jesus is going to come from an ordinary town, ordinary group of people, 
and he's going to get baptized too. In fact, one of the other gospels tells us John says, no, I should be baptized by you. He said, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness because he's going to be, he's, he's truly, this Messiah is going to be one of us. If you watch any TV, have you seen the, the new uh, campaign called He Gets Us? Any of those? Oh, I love those. Oh, my gosh, they're so good. They're edgy. But if you're going to reach people on the edge, you've got to go out there on the edge. And these commercials are doing that. We showed one a couple weeks ago in my message that Jesus was born to a teenage mom. Uh, there's some, they're powerful. And in every one of these, they're trying to say that Jesus gets us because he's like us. He gets all of us. And the gospel, the readers of Mark's gospel, again, would have been shocked by all of this. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Oh, there's many more shockers to come, bigger ones than this. Just hold on. So Mark reveals that he's the Messiah, that, that he's the Son of God. Also reveals how people responded. Have you ever kind of put yourself in the place of the first century? What would it have been like if I was there? What would it have been like if I had heard Jesus, had seen Jesus? Have you ever just kind of imagined that? Well, the, the Mark tells us that there were three main reactions that people had to Jesus. Well, there were, there were a couple others, but there were three here for this, this purpose. Um, there was amazement, astonishment. There was awe. And there was fear. Or sometimes people were, were just downright afraid because of things that Jesus did going on in our story here today in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 22 when we have the story of the, uh, the, the demon being cast out. It says, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Um, I'm sorry, we're looking at the wrong verse here. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 12. So when, when Jesus does this, they were amazed. All right, now chapter 2, verse 12 says, he got up. This is the healing of a man who was paralyzed. The man got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen something like this. And then go to chapter 5, and this theme is, gonna, is throughout the whole chapter. Just look at it. I'm going to read some of the verses from chapter 5. First, there's verse 15 in, in chapter 5. It says, uh, when they, they came to Jesus, backstory, there's this man who is wild and violent, and he's living in a cemetery, unclothed, scares everybody, and Jesus comes along. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Later in the story, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. In verse, in verse 33, this theme continues. It says here, then the woman, this was a woman who had been bleeding for many years, not able to get medical help, touches the fringe of Jesus' garment when he wasn't looking. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to him, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. This is about a little girl who had died. He says, don't be afraid. And he raises this girl up. And in verse 42, it says, immediately, this girl that was dead stood up, began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. That's what it would have been like to follow the ministry of Jesus. When was the last time you were astonished? 
I love that word. You know, Jesus is still working in our world. In fact, he says where two or more are gathered, there I am. He's here. Maybe, Maybe we're not astonished because we're not looking for God's fingerprints. Or maybe we don't pray for astonishing things to happen. Why? I know sometimes we pray and we don't get the answer we want. But I wonder if we'd be more astonished if we looked for it, expected it. Friday was on the phone with a, a, a lifelong friend of mine, Brad. Brad was a young life director when I moved to town here in Cape Girardeau, and he's the same age, and we just got to know each other, became really good friends, and we've stayed in touch all these years. Just after a few years here, he, he moved to Minneapolis where he continued to work with Young Life and um, rose to a very high position overseeing a couple different states. And now he, he started a new position where he is basically de- in charge of development and fundraising for, for Young Life at a very big level. And I've uh, been talking to him. He loves his job, but he, it's, a, it's a job like many other Young Life jobs where he has to raise his own support. And he's, he's telling me he's in this for a, a month or two, and, and the support's just not coming, and nothing's happening. And, and so finally, he goes to an abbey uh, to pray. He and I kind of both do the same thing, get, get, get some times with the monks, you know, and we're, he's there, and he's, he's prostrate on the ground. And he's saying, God, did I hear you wrong? Did, did I miss it somewhere? That, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've been doing this, and, 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 and it, you know, I'm not seeing any evidence that you're going to raise the support I need to, to do this job. And just then uh, he feels a hand on his shoulder and it's one of the monks and he comes along and offers to pray with him and they pray. And it was in the middle of the night. That morning before noon he gets a call from a, a friend he's known for a long time who's been very successful in business. Asks what he's doing. Asks some updates on Young Life. And says, well, and he, he said his family, they get off, the, you know, they kind of set the phone down there talking for a while. Here's his family members talking. He said, well, we're, Brad, we're going to give you 20% of everything you need for a year. And he's telling me this. He's choking up. Because it was just hours before, prostrate on the ground, that he is praying desperate, desperate prayers, and God answers him. Jesus is still in the business of doing astonishing things. So people were filled with wonder and awe and fear. Um, another thing that is revealed in, in Mark chapter 1 is that this Messiah, the Son of God, is not on an easy mission. In fact, he's going to be confronting the very gates of hell. He's going to be walking into intense warfare. And we get that with the story of the, the man who's possessed. Let me read this again for you. It says, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us? Now, the man is speaking, okay, but something else comes out of him speaking. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Remember, Mark is doing this identity, this mystery identity. The demon said, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Now, demons always speak lies, but sometimes when they speak the truth, they're speaking it in, in a way to disturb other people and to use it in a twisted, sort of demented way. But here's this man, and Jesus says, Be quiet, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently, and he came out. 
of him with a shriek, and everybody was amazed and said, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even orders demons, and they, they listen to him. See, when it says that Jesus spoke with authority, first it means he wasn't quoting other authorities. He wasn't quoting other scholars like the scribes and the Pharisees did in his day. He spoke as if he himself was the authority. He said things, quite frankly, that you would only expect God to say. But not only that, when Jesus showed up, things happened. Things happened. In this occasion, he shows up at the synagogue, and this man who is possessed by many demons is set free. And this will be the pattern throughout the ministry of Jesus when he shows up. He teaches with authority, and things begin to happen. Good things, powerful things. So that's what is revealed about Jesus in Mark chapter 1. But there's also something that Jesus reveals about God to us, which is what he will do throughout his ministry. And to get this, you've got to go back to the baptism. Now, that was read earlier as part of our kind of overview of Mark chapter 1. And let me go back to that and start with verse 10. So Jesus comes from Nazareth, goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. First, I want you to get that language, heaven being torn open. Now, that is a way of saying that something about God is being revealed. There's one other time that that specific language is used, and it's on Isaiah chapter 64. And Isaiah is pleading for God to reveal himself, and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And here it says, this is what happened. Heaven, it's like someone pulls a curtain, and they get a glimpse of ultimate reality. What's behind the curtain? Um, heaven isn't so much out there, you know, way far away, as it is right among us. That's hard for us to even begin to understand that, but right among us. In, in and among us, there's this other reality. It's God's reality. It's heaven. And some people say that they get into certain places in the world or certain experiences, and it's a thin space where it's as if the, the veil that separates heaven from, from earth becomes very thin, as if you can see and sense God in that very place. But here it gets pulled back, and we get a glimpse of what heaven is, where God is. We get a glimpse of ultimate reality. Um, and it says that the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now, it wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove, all right? So that just tells you right there that Mark is trying to describe with language what really can't be described completely with language. Now, what's interesting here is that this is a parallel happening around the water, the Jordan River. It's a parallel to the creation story. There's only one other time in the Old Testament that God's Spirit is referred to as a dove, and it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go back to the beginning of our Bible, the very first couple verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Get that? 
the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Now, the Targums was an Aramaic translation of the Bible out of Hebrew. Aramaic was a version, a, kind of a dialect of Hebrew. Jesus spoke Aramaic. He also spoke Hebrew and most likely Greek too. But his, his first language was Aramaic. So everybody in the first century was familiar with the Targums. This is how the Targums it, uh, translates Genesis 1, 2. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. So there in creation was God creating the Spirit fluttering like a dove and the Word, let there be light. John lets us know that Jesus himself is the Word of God. In Revelation, the title given, he is the word of God. And, and the baptism of Jesus is this parallel. It's, it's, it's a parallel creation story because what? God is creating anew. He's making all things new. And in Jesus will come the new creation. Now, what you get here is this glimpse of reality. What the world, what the universe is really like. And here we see that God is three in one. And we'll call that the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the scriptures. Let me tell you what it isn't. Trinity is not tritheism. We don't believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons. Nor do we believe in what is sometimes called modalism. Some people picture the Trinity in that sense. It's uh, uh, like, well, at certain times, God appears in the mode of the Father, and other times he appears as the Son, and other times he appears as the Spirit, yet there's only one God who appears differently. We don't believe that either. The early church looked at all of this stuff and trying to understand and grapple with who Jesus was and how this all fits together and came to the conclusion that God is three in one. He's not more uh, uh, three than he is one. He's not one, more one than he is three. He is unlike anything in all creation, anyone in all creation. Three distinct persons living as one, one person living as three. Um, so this is hugely significant. Saying, oh, well, we're gonna get a talk on the Trinity, okay? It's huge. Tim Keller, in his fabulous book, uh, King's Cross, says this about the baptism of Jesus. When the Father appears and says, you're my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. Tim Keller says, this is what has been happening in the interior life of the Trinity from all eternity. Mark is giving us a glimpse into the very heart of reality, the meaning of life, the essence of the universe. What? Three. What does the Father do? He pours love on the Son. What does the Spirit do? He comes and he gives the, the, the Son power. Jesus will later say, I live to glorify the Father. He says, the Holy Spirit will not come and exalt himself. He will point people to me. The members of the Trinity are constantly deferring to one another, serving one another, loving one another, and in this selfless sort of existence, there's ultimate love and reality. C.S. Lewis said in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will, not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. 
You see, in a dance, it's not saying you dance around me. It's I'll dance with you and around you. And there's this beautiful selflessness and self-giving and mutual sacrifice and service and adoration of the other that takes place for all eternity. And, they, and the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ultimately and completely joy-filled. They exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each person harbors the others at the center of their being in constant movement and overture and acceptance. Every person, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for the other. This is the Trinity. Three who are one, one who are three. Mutual love and adoration. Perfect joy. Complete in and of himself. God is. Now what does this matter? It matters infinitely. Take your view of God, and your view of God will shape everything you believe about the world. It will shape everything you believe about life. It will shape what you believe and think about love. All right? So, for example, if you're an atheist, meaning you don't believe there's a God, then at the, at the center of the universe is random chance. Life is really just an accident. And so for the atheist, love is really a, just, just a chemical reaction in the brain, the body wanting to replicate its DNA and to pass on its DNA so that the species might survive. Pretty romantic, eh? That's what love is if you're an atheist. If you believe in an impersonal God, as you would see in Buddhism, then the goal in life is to stay detached from people because you know that when you get close to people, you can get hurt. You can experience the greatest joy with people. You can also experience the greatest heart and heartache and pain with people. And so the object of life is to live a detached life if you believe in an impersonal God. If you believe in a unipersonal God, one who is one and not three, then there was a time before the creation of the world that God was not love. Because love, by definition, requires that there be a beloved. There has to be someone to love, something to love. And so God then would create the world, this unipersonal God, to get something from the world. To get joy, the worship and adoration that comes from the beings that he creates. But if at the heart of the universe is Trinity, this means that at the very essence and meaning of life is found in loving relationships. It's found in love. And having a relationship that is not you-centered, but centered around others, and in that selflessness comes a joy and a meaning and a purpose and a fulfillment that cannot come in any other kind of way. See, Mark gives us this little glimpse. He says, look, this is reality. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mutually serving, loving, and adoring one another. So if that's the case, why did God create us? Well, he didn't create us because he needed anything. He had everything that he needed within himself. The three enjoying perfect harmony and love and beauty and selflessness. There's only one logical reason why God, this kind of God, would create not to get something from us, but to give something to us. To give us joy. To bring us into that dance. To bring us into that loving, eternal relationship so that we might know what God has known for all eternity. 
And so, you see, it's big. Knowing Jesus means knowing the ultimate purpose and the meaning of the universe. What life is all about. It's about love. And being in a loving relationship with God and with others. Um, and so, this has significance for you on that level and others. Now, the Messiah, one of the understandings of the Messiah is that he would stand in our place. And that whatever God says to the Messiah, he says to all of us and those who are in the Messiah. One of Paul's favorite phrase, the Apostle Paul, he'll write and he'll talk about being in Christ or being in Messiah. So that all the promises of God come true in the Messiah. So that what God says to the Messiah, he says to us. So you ready? You know what God says to Jesus that day? The Father says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And because he's the Messiah, God says that to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And with you, I'm well pleased. Friends, that's huge. You can look at all the problems, at the root of all of the problems and the social ills and the angst of our world. It's people trying to find love. They act out because they don't have it. But yet, in Christ, we get it. Ultimate love. It's found in Jesus. So believe it. You're loved. The Father says to you, you're my son or my daughter. I love you. I'm so pleased with you. Some of you don't believe that. He came in Jesus so that you would experience what he has experienced for all eternity. Unconditional love and joy and peace in Messiah. Well, Mark is going to take 16 chapters and roll this out. The crowd's not going to get it until the very end. Um, but along the way, we readers are told. Others are told and they get it. And I suspect many of you here today, you get it. You understand who Jesus is, Messiah, the Son of God. If not, I want to invite you to stay with us on this journey through the summer. We're going we're gonna to look at this of, of, of who is revealed in John and, and this great mystery, this great identity mystery of who Jesus is and how it impacts everything. So go on the journey with us. But here, here's another invitation. If, if you know this and the crowd doesn't, the crowd still doesn't know all kinds of ideas out there about who Jesus is, then why don't you take someone along with you on the journey? I think one of the best ways to do this, take, take someone through Alpha. Give me a couple months. We don't start Alpha till the middle of September. Take someone on a journey with you. Some of the, the most precious journeys I've seen happen in the last few years is where a follower of Jesus takes somebody with them to Alpha, sits down and goes through it, eats the meal. If they have to do it, they do it. You know, they eat the good food. And they go through Alpha and their loved one, their friend, discovers the ultimate meaning of life. 
Wouldn't it be awesome to bring somebody into that dance, pull back the curtain, and see what life is really all about? You keep a secret. I hope not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what is revealed to us in just this chapter and so much more yet to come. Thank you for the Gospels, for the good news. Thank you that at the center of the universe is selfless, self-giving love. Thank you. I pray especially for the person sitting here who just really, they heard me say those words, but they just don't believe it. God, may your spirit that flutters like a dove bring home to them this truth, that they are loved, that in Messiah, in Jesus, they are beloved. Let that sink deep into their soul, permeating every cell in their body. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.